Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to this special episode of From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. For this episode, I'm here live at AOC's Cyber Electromagnetic Activities, or SEMA, 2021 conference at Bell Camp, Maryland, just outside of Aberdeen Proving Ground. It's our first in-person conference in over a year, so it's great to be back in a somewhat normal conference environment. Uh, we have a great episode today as I sit down with several of our speakers and industry partners throughout the conference, including Lieutenant General Stephen Fogarty, Brigadier General Rob Collins, and others. Before we begin, I'd like to thank our episode sponsor, Pentec. Pentec provides cutting-edge, interoperable, deployable board and system-level solutions for the most demanding high-performance requirements. Pentec arms the defense community with the electronic tools they need for mission readiness and success. Learn more at pentec.com slash go slash EW. So to begin this episode, I am here with AOC President Glenn Powder Carlson. It's great to have you, Powder. Appreciate you being on From the Crow's Nest for your first time here. So I appreciate your time. Yeah, great to be here, Ken. I appreciate the invite and... I'm excited to do the podcast. Excellent. So you kicked off our SEMA conference this morning. Uh, what was your main message to the audience about the role that AOC is playing in, the, in, in cooperation with the Army in pursuit of SEMA? The main message is in line with what our strategy is, obviously, to advocate, educate, and support working with the chapters, chapters working with each other, working with the membership, and focusing in on the theme of SEMA about MDO 2030 and beyond, the multi-dimension operations is key to any of the future work in MSO. And we see that even as the terminology changing from multi-dimensional to all domains. And that's really important for us as we move forward. And we're anxious to see, anxious to hear the speakers here talking about what they're doing to move forward not and with them so not just SEMA but with them so overarching to include electronic warfare and information operations. This is our first in-person conference of the year. We're back slowly getting back to normal, but uh, it's not the first thing that we first event that we've done uh, as AOC. We've been uh, actually busy offering a number of different virtual events over the year, and uh, we had a AOC discussions. We have a we just wrapped up a virtual summit program managers briefing series. And so some of the speakers here today have also addressed us previously, but we've also heard from other U.S. military leaders and NATO leaders. Uh, what are some of the common messages and, and themes that you're hearing over the first uh, six months of this year? Hearing the need to get back to some sort of normal, but also hearing about that MSO and the spectrum is critical to any of the operations. Uh, we see an awful lot that's going on around the globe with our 
allied partners and coalition partners and conflicts that are actually going on and how important the spectrum actually is. And then when you have events like a couple of weeks ago uh, with the Colonial Pipeline and the ransomware and cyber issues and challenges, um, it makes it very, brings it to the forefront that we EMSO is critical to not just the military, but also even the civilian and the commercial side. So after SEMA, our next major event is going to be our signature annual convention symposium in in November. And the theme is, as you alluded to earlier, is is all domain operations and integrating effects across the spectrum. So we get in, we will have a more in-depth conversation on this concept of JADC2 at, at at the convention. What, what are some of the uh, top priorities for our military forces moving forward, especially coming out of SEMA, that we need to look at as a, the AOC over the next few months? I think watching what the military and what even the government is and how the DOD budget plays out, where is MSO in that, what, is the prior, what are those priorities, and seeing how the services continue to work together, seeing what new or next generation systems are out there and being developed and how they are being crossed between the services. I also think we wanna be taking a look closer at that commercial civilian side because as we see, that is being impacted as well and we know that Spectrum is still being, you know, there's areas that are gonna be sold off. What is gonna happen with 6G? We've seen what has happened with 5G. So what's going to happen when 6G comes out? There's a lot of challenges there. And what are we building into systems? Uh, electronic protect or electromagnetic protect is becoming more to the forefront as we see systems being exploited. So how do we protect them? And that's and that goes for anything on the net, um, whether it's military, civilian, commercial, there are vulnerabilities out there. So there, there are listeners to the podcast out there who are not members of the AOC, and they may be exploring a little bit more about uh, their profession or how their profession touches EMS. So what do you want people listening to this show today to know about the AOC um, and our mission and, and how we can help them professionally? Well, that the AOC, it's one, is involved in STEM and growing young engineers and new engineers. They're the future. Um, the spectrum is going to be around, and the AOC is going to, will continue to be a major part of that of, for discussions, advocation, and what we want, what we need is new ideas, new innovations. How do, can we further technologies? How can we further involvement across, again, academia, industry, government, uh, DOD and again and it's global and it's not just here it's global and so how do we do this globally because we've seen how connected the globe is especially with the pandemic and I'm doing all these virtual summits I, I kicked off AOC Europe a week ago which was which was great being able to be at my location in New Hampshire but being able to work with the folks in Great Britain. Stay connected with the world a little yeah. bit through our international membership, absolutely. So, well, th- thank you, Powder, for, for joining me, and I'll let you get back to the conference and uh, look forward to talking with you throughout the week. All thank right. You. Thanks, Bye. Ken. Appreciate it. 
I'm very pleased to be here with Lieutenant General Stephen Fogarty. He is the Commanding General of Army Cyber Command. Welcome, General Fogarty. Ken, thank you for the uh, invitation to share some thoughts this afternoon. So you just completed your keynote address at our SEMA conference here this morning. Uh, what was your walkaway message to the audience? I think the, the key message was we need to achieve information advantage to enable supported commanders to achieve decision dominance. And the evolution of 21st century warfare mandates the need for speed. And we have to quickly achieve operational outcomes, account for the human nature of war, and implement innovative technologies that serve as force multipliers and combined arms and multi-domain operations. But in order to achieve information advantage and decision dominance, we must be able to see ourselves, see our adversaries, and see relevant actors or activities quicker and better than our adversaries. The model that our cyber uses is SUDA, which is sense, understand, decide, act, and assess. And that's really our organizing uh, principle uh, behind uh, the capabilities that, uh, that we provide uh, to the Army and to the Joint Force. Can you update us on the Army's efforts to converge signals intelligence, cyber, and EW? And do you anticipate an eventual full convergence of the technology and manpower resources and all that? Or do you expect there to still be some space between these important capabilities that we're bringing to the force? So, so currently, Army Cyber is experimenting with the best ways to effectively achieve uh, you know, information advantage and decision dominance in support of the land commander's scheme and maneuver. And that's dependent on uh, SIGINT cyber and electronic warfare uh, convergence. So uh, the short answer is uh, I absolutely believe uh, that those three must uh, converge. Now, they may have different uh, authorities, different uh, organizations, you know, different capabilities that will actually uh, you know, generate the, uh, the information and the, uh, the data. But the real convergence is how we, how we pull all of this together. Now, this, this summer, we're going to be experimenting with uh, enabling U.S. Army Pacific, uh, First Corps, and the multi-domain task force out in the Pacific with capabilities that will enable them to achieve information advantage and uh, decision uh, dominance. And you know, we're going to provide a full range of capabilities, and this is the first, first time that uh, they'll get really the full menu that, uh, that Army Cyber can provide. And ultimately, you know, independent of these, these individual capabilities is going to be our ability to, uh, to converge the sensors, the information, the data, so that the commanders at those three echelons actually can sense, understand, decide, act, and assess faster and more effectively uh, than the competition or their adversaries uh, in the theater. Now, you mentioned that this is the, the first time that you're going to be contributing in, the, in this way. Um, and I think this, this is good to show how the Army is progressing. And you've been speaking to AOC conferences now for a little bit, and one of your recurring themes is how Army Cyber Command is is managing this pivot uh, for an information advantage and decision dominance. And I think that you know this kind of exercise shows the, the progress in that area. And, and it doesn't always, it not only governs how we fight, but also the capabilities that we have to use to fight. And uh, this is no easy task. What are some of the major challenges that the Army must address to ensure convergence? And, but also 
compatibility across the force. Uh, there's a lot of different systems at play, uh, for, obviously the joint force and large sums of data. So what are some of the challenges and, and what does this mean in terms of joint war fighting that you're going to experience with this exercise over the summer? So, so I think, first of all, I, there, there, there are two categories of challenges. There's probably many more, but there's two that I, I normally uh, try to bend as I'm organizing uh, myself. One is technical, the second is cultural. And I think for the most part, you know, the technical challenges, although they're real, will overcome all of those. Sometimes it just takes time, uh, it takes uh, uh, repetition, it takes, uh, uh, you know, compromise by uh, all the multiple players. Because I think that's very important to state is that, you know, Army Cyber is just one player, you know, in this uh, information advantage uh, space. So it, it runs the gamut from, you know, public affairs, psychological operations, uh, military information, uh, support operations, intelligence, uh, signal, efforts that uh, our partners are doing out throughout the depth of the theater. So in some cases with you know, systems that uh, were not designed to be compatible uh, with each other. And so I think that's one of the things we're going to uh, have the opportunity to experiment with and, and learn. You know, the second piece is, is actually cultural. And I describe them as tribes. We have, you know, the PSYOPs regiment, the Signal regiment, the Intel Corps, the Cyber Corps, a bunch of other uh, players across, you know, multiple functional areas, different services. And so sometimes uh, those challenges can actually be uh, more daunting. But I think what has occurred uh, over the, uh, the last few years is we've come together for instance, in Afghanistan with some of our partners, that's been a great uh, place for us to uh, figure some of this out. And I think as we look toward the Pacific this summer, it's a different scenario. There are different players, and, uh, and it's really going to, uh, to give us a chance to you know, figure out how we make uh, our systems more compatible, how we'll be able to, uh, to unify our platforms, uh, with the architectures and the, the data flow requirements are going to uh, to be how we protect, defend uh, all of that is going to be uh, you know very very important. All of this depends upon network that is uh, secure, it's uh, resilient, and it actually can reach across the multiple parts of this problem. So everything from the uh, electromagnetic spectrum to you know, very conventional IT networks, terrestrial to, uh, to satellite-based. Uh, so as you can imagine, there's going to be a lot of learning this summer, and we're, we consider this as you know, part of our, our campaign of learning on how to bring these capabilities down to uh, the warfighters at Echelon. After the summer, looking onto the horizon for the next one to two years or so, uh, what is one development across any aspect of, of what we call .milpf doctrine, organization training, and so forth? What is one development that is especially exciting to you and that you believe will be kind of the linchpin to successful Army SEMA operations moving forward? I'm going to give you a, a capability. It's electronic warfare planning and management tool, and that's something uh, the Army's been working on uh, for several years now. And it was this basic recognition that if you look at who the, the principal players in the electromagnetic spectrum were from at least an Army perspective, it was a signal regiment uh, who had responsibilities for managing the spectrum. And then 
using the spectrum to uh, enable command and control, ISR, fires, uh, logistics, medevac, all those things that uh, that uh, Information Age Army requires. So, so they're a major player. And then there's the Intel Corps, who does intelligence collection uh, in the spectrum. And then we had uh, the EW team, who had uh, principal responsibility for electronic protect, electronic attack. And then the Cyber Corps uh, was also a uh, major player. We became the fourth uh, element in this because of our use of the, uh, the spectrum uh, to conduct operations. I think you could add the space team into there also. But the, the bottom line is all those who are using the spectrum, we, we had built stovepipes over many years. Uh, you know, our planning tools for spectrum were different than the collection management tools that the the uh, G2 uh, uses to separate uh, capabilities that the uh, electronic warfare uh, team use. So EWPMT really becomes, uh, gives us the potential uh, to unify all those disparate threads into a capability that allows all those players to understand what each other is, uh, is doing in the spectrum and then predict where there may be conflict. So if, if we're dependent upon a key read from an adversary that the Intel team is collecting on, uh, I don't want to jam that uh, necessarily, or in a certain period, I may not want to, uh, to jam it. Uh, likewise, in the part of the spectrum that friendly forces are operating in, I have to be very discriminant about employing you know, electronic attack capabilities. So this capability will be the principal uh, tool for the SEMA cells that uh, the Army's fielding to the brigade combat team, the division, and the core level. And then it will link into uh, the platforms that uh, the Intel Corps and the, the Cyber Corps, the electronic warfare arm of the Cyber Corps, are, uh, are going to be using at brigade, division, and core level. So... I'm watching that very carefully uh, to make sure that can actually do what I described. And uh, the good news is we've got a great team that we're working with that uh, can make required changes as we as we identify uh, shortfalls or uh, you know, exploit uh, opportunities that uh, that we discover. Great. Uh, w- one last question. You mentioned adversaries, and Russia and China uh, are identified as really our primary peer competitors. And each has made significant strides in their ability to gain an advantage in the information dimension. But as we've discussed on other episodes previously of from the Crow's Nest here, is they each provide very different capabilities, uh, different ab- vulnerabilities, different opportunities in this dimension. And as we try to prepare to compete with them, we not only have to look at what we need to do to obviate their capabilities, but we also have to look to how to impose cost and risk in their decision-making processes. Uh, so it's not just about destruction. There's a, it's more nuanced than that. So a lot of that's going to have to fall on the Army and, and other services to how to impose cost and, and risk that is a little bit harder to measure. So how is the Army positioning itself to compete with our adversaries in the information environment with regards to these types of uh, capabilities? And then how is Army Cyber Command pursuing the capabilities specifically to impose cost and risk on the adversary? So so that's actually a great question. If you think about, uh, as I started my remarks this morning at the the conference, what I discussed was what uh, Phil Carver really discovered 
through you know per- personal reconnaissance uh, over in the Ukraine. And it's this idea that we have to watch our adversaries, observe how they operate in both the information dimension and the uh, cyber domain, how they use their capabilities uh, to support uh, combined arms uh, maneuver, and uh, and do the same thing for uh, for the PRC, DPRK, Iran, any, any of our adversaries or our competitors. And start with this foundation of, uh, of knowledge. Uh, you create understanding so that, that we understand the threat uh, and then we can apply appropriate capabilities against that uh, threat. So, so that's actually uh, what we've done starting back in uh, 2014 as uh, Dr. Carver started uh, making his reports, significant influence on the work we were doing at that time at the Cyber Center of Excellence. And it actually gave us the argument that we needed to not only retain the electronic warfare capabilities, but upgun them. And so, uh, you know, a couple of decisions were made. One is to fold the EWF functional capability into the cyber branch. The second was to look at how we take all of our capabilities break down the stovepipes between them, which I had just discussed, between the Intel Core, the Signal Core, and the, uh, the EW uh, and cyber team, and, and actually be able to, to fully converge those, uh, those capabilities. And then there was the equipping portion of this. So there's some exciting uh, developments as uh, we're looking at fielding uh, you know, the TLIS, uh, you know, BCT, as rapidly as possible. So I, I think where we're at right now is the force is uh, threat-informed. We understand the importance of convergence to allow us to you know, sense, understand, decide, act, and assess faster and more effectively than the adversary. And then we will see uh, fielding uh, capabilities they're going to allow us to compete with the uh, the adversary, and if we have to uh, transition to conflict, that uh, they'll be able to uh, to do what is uh, required. But I I think this is an exciting time uh, to be working this problem set. We we do it in conjunction uh, with our partners, uh, principal partners uh, from USASOC. We've learned tremendously from them, the PSYOPs Regiment and First Special Forces Command has uh, been a tremendous partner for us. Our work with the uh, Intelligence uh, Center of Excellence and the uh, the Intel Corps, and then uh, obviously uh, the work we do uh, day-to-day with the Cyber Center of Excellence, which has both the Signal Regiment uh, in, the, uh, in the Intel Corps. And between the doctrine, the technical capabilities, and then the ability to, to actually get out and operate together, I think we're positioning ourselves well for the uh, current threat and then the threat as we, uh, we forecast into the future. Excellent. And it's, it's very exciting to see the, the progress that the Army is making on, on, on this front. That will do it. Uh, I greatly appreciate uh, you taking time out of your busy schedule to join me here on From the Crow's Nest, uh, General Fogarty. You had a tremendous uh, presentation this morning. Really, thank you for all the support you provided to the AOC. And uh, we look forward to having you at uh, a SEMA conference again in the near future. Absolutely, Ken. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. A BA Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating, disruptive next generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Lab specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing to high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems Electronic Systems product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens it had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work and classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. I'm here with uh, Brigadier General Rob Collins, Program Executive Officer for Command Control Communications Tactical, or C3T. Welcome, General Collins. Great to have you on From the Crow's Nest here at SEMA. Great great to be here on this beautiful day overlooking the waterfront. Yes, we are, we are back in person for the first time in over a year. It's, it's, a, it's been a great experience so far. So you are PO of C3T, and your office develops, acquires, fields, and supports uh, the Army Tactical Network. Uh, what was your message here today to the audience at SEMA? So I think one of the things that uh, our message was is uh, we start to look to the future uh, future battlefield. It's going to be one where uh, it's a game of speed. And I'll tell you, 
you know, as you look historically back on battles, there's normally been a parity of capability, but he, he who is able to understand, uh, be able to act quicker, you know, there was a, right after World War II, there was a pilot that discussed the OODA loop, if you will, the observe, orient, decide, and act. And so we believe there's going to be a tremendous competitive advantage of those that can be able to understand, be able to process, be able to disseminate, and be able to act. And so really one of my messages today was, you know, our ability to contribute from an Army perspective into what we call that JADC2 construct, uh, to be able to get after that speed, that range, that convergence, so we can get into that decision dominance, that decision cycle, uh, being inside that decision loop. And so... Uh, you know, there's a, a couple areas that we need to focus in on, you know, whether it be networking, whether it be the convergence of how people visualize the battle space, how we're interoperable. I mean, one of our strengths is our ability to operate as a joint force and a coalition force. And then certainly we have to do so in a very survi survivable fashion. But to be able to collectively uh, do all that is going to require, you know, a degree and heavy reliance on data. And, and certainly many would say that uh, data is the the oil of the 21st century. And so... He or she who controls that can be able to ingest that, understand that, is really going to have an edge on the future battle space. And, and the amount of data that is out there in the battle space right now is just growing exponentially, and you have to, it's hard to keep up with that and process that at, at speeds that you need to for the command. A absolutely. And so there is, a, there is a whole host of data out there from, you know, sensor data, full motion video, to, uh, you know, three-letter agencies collecting data, geospatial data. Uh, cyber domains bringing in a tremendous amount of data, so we have to be able to to harvest all that, synthesize that, uh, do so at space, you know, at speed, and then be able to distribute that. And so, hence the importance and the critical linkage of the of the network. And that's really one that's one of the Army's main modernization focuses. And we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a second. But just for those who might not be familiar with your office, you have a huge office. You have over, oversee about forty five different programs, and we can't cover them all here today, but. Uh, what are some of the what are a few of the programs that you're most excited about that tap into this ability to collect and and analyze and distribute the data so quickly? Yeah, thanks. And um, and so for folks that don't necessarily understand what a PEO is, there's about 12 PEOs in the Army. I recently just spent time with the uh, Intel and Electronic Warfare Organization, and now I'm moved over here to Communications and Mission Command. And so I, I do believe I bring a unique perspective of kind of understanding some of the landscape, but. Uh, I'll tell you, you know, as I mentioned, for me, it starts and ends with making sure that we're focused to enable the Army's contribution of JADC2. So a couple programs we're probably, you know, really, you know, focused in on is pushing capability down to the lowest tactical edge. We just completed a, a leader radio and a man packable radio that's being able to distribute uh, new mobile networking waveforms, new satellite waveforms. So that's probably one a big program on the convergence front, our command post computing environment, where we're starting to establish the foundation of a data fabric and collapsing uh, applications on top of that from Intel, fires, logistics. And then I'd also tell you uh, from a survivability perspective, our command post, uh, we have a CPI2 program. It's a command post program. Uh, now, after 20 years of small scale contingency operations, we have to get back to command posts that are expeditionary, mobile, and, and survivable too. And so we've got a number of uh, experiments, pilots that are ongoing, not only with brigades, but divisions 
uh, how, we the, uh, how we do that. So that's probably a couple of our key focuses. Really the last foundational focus I would tell you too is, is that data fabric. And so we've got a concept that's been initiated, Rainmaker. And so Rainmaker, I think in our S&T community, provides the blueprint. And I kind of differentiate sometimes between big R Rainmaker, which is that blueprint, and then little r Rainmaker, which are the material contributions that may make that up. And that's really where I'm counting on industry to come in because uh, there are a lot of innovative novel, new, you know, data fabric elements across the industry, whether it be finance, whether it be medical, whether it be banking, insurance. I mean, everyone has some of the similar things they're trying to do is harvest lots of data, keep it cyber hardened, and allow folks to be able to action off of it. Now, when we're talking about uh, network modernization, a large part of the, the SEMA vision and effort is this need for the Army to pivot and basically align a lot of your modernization efforts to the JADC2 environment, which you talked about. So could you talk a little bit about how the Army is aligning the network modernization efforts for JADC2? Yeah, and so, I mean, one of the things I, I want to continue to underscore is this is really a, a game of speed. And, and the Army is really, one of the things we're focused in on is really providing the the ground network within the domain of the, of the JADC2. And so, you know, as we continue to focus not only on speed, but also talking about the range, the convergence, and really trying to get after the decision dominance. I would tell you, we have we have looked at the JADC2 construct and developed what we call, you know, four lines of effort or swim lanes that we're focused in on. Swim lane number one being our unified network. And those are things that, whether it be uh, ground, aerial space, where we put edge uh, compute forward, those are those inherent things that you think of of a network to be able to move data. The second swim lane is really that that convergence, the common operating environment, if you will. And that's where we're trying to set the foundation of a data fabric on a common infrastructure. And then you can host applications, which really serve as the single pane of glass from which users can be able to view, whether it be the, the ground domain, whether it be, you know, fires domain, intelligence domain, and really the new cyber domain. The third swim lane is we certainly know that some of the things that make us great as a nation. One is our decentralized ability to operate, but the other is is fighting with joint coalition partners. So the, the third swim lane is interoperability. And so um, some of the areas that we're focusing on is how do we improve the ability to exchange data, have transport connectivity with our coalition partners and joint partners. And then finally, the fourth domain being survivability. We certainly know that uh, you have got to be cautious as you communicate on the future battlefield to lower your probability of intercept, lower your probability detect, and then ultimately lower your probability to be geolocated, to be targeted. So what I'd say is we've, we've organized against these four swim lanes, and then we've also adopted what we would call an incremental iterative fielding strategy across two-year uh, cycles. We call those capability sets. In fact, we're roughly about halfway through fielding our capability set 21, really focused on pushing expeditionary and intuitive capability down to the lowest edge for our our tactical units, Cape Set 23, and we'll follow that on continuous two-year cycles, and all really bounded by experimentation to help inform along the way. So I want to go back to the capability set. You know, so you mentioned 21, so you're fielding that, and you're doing some experimentation for the what you call combined JADC2. So could you go into a little bit more detail about how the Army, how does the Army stand with development of the capability set for 23? Great, great question, and it's a very timely question because we just finished up a major milestone in the Capability Set 23 initiative. The, the, the first thing that I would tell you is Capability Set 23 builds upon capabilities that we've already provided in, in Capability Set 21. As I talked about 
you know, expeditionary intuitive. And then really with capability set 23, we're act, adding in, you know, increased capacity. We're adding in some resiliency and we're really focused in on, uh, on convergence. One of the things I would say too is, yes, we are moving quickly, but we're also doing so with a sense of deliberate process. And so one of the things I would say on CAPES, you know, each cycle, we start out with a series of design goals. Uh, then the design goals turned into decomposed requirements. And then for capability set 23 specific, when we come into a preliminary uh, design architecture, we allows us to then go out, experiment. Some things work. Some things may not necessarily work. There may be things that we didn't even realize that we could take opportunity of, and so we're able to do that. We then finalize with a critical design review, and then we head out from a fielding perspective. Along the way in Cape Set 23, let me, let me just hit two additional points. We're continually looking at requirements. You know, do we have concepts for employment accurate? Do we have mature technology? And then at the end of the day, I think as all of our viewers are probably aware of, we have to be fiscally aware of what's going on from affordability perspective. Uh, some of the specific things in Cape Set 23, I would tell you, we're looking at uh, commercial SATCOM. Uh, Mid-Earth orbit is probably a big area. I've already talked about uh, convergence. Data fabric is, is a big area we're going to roll out. We're looking at collapsing some additional domains, cyber situational understanding being one of them. And then uh, from an interoperability perspective, we're really looking at some coalition aspects. So um, CAPESAP 23 in the, in the preliminary design, we've got another year to go out and experiment, and then we'll wrap it up and we'll be ready to focus in. And, and the last thing, too, is Cape Set 21 was focused on infantry units, Cape Set 23 more on strikers, and then when we get to Cape Set 25, looking at armor brigade combat teams. Now, when you're going through these capability sets and you're doing experimentation, you're holding events, are, are you realigning some of the parameters for the capability sets and, along the way so that you know, you, when you get to 2025, 20, it might look different than you originally thought back here? In it, it, absolutely. And so one, one of the things I'll just take a minute, you know, inherently when we designed the CAPE set initiatives, it was designed to be an iterative process. You've probably heard a lot about DevOps and DevSecOps. And, and one of the things I would tell you is the big idea here is really to link the user community with the developers. And, and so, you know, in, in, the, in the previous environment, you would develop this very lengthy, several hundred page requirement document, put it on the conveyor belt, and it would spit out, you know, a widget, and then we'd see the widget, and then the, we'd provide it to the unit, and they'd say, well, that may not necessarily be what I need. So collapse those, you know, those in parallel. And then adding the security, you know, how do we take into account cybersecurity, interoperability checks, the test community, so we can do things, you know, at, at speed, at the speed of need faster. And so I think within the Cape Set strategy, we have embraced um, DevOps, soldier touch points, uh, what I would call a soldier-centric design, and really the beauty of project convergence. Unlike how we used to do things previously, we were able to do experimentation early. So as I talked, you know, about our technologies mature, do we have concepts for employment? Um, that allows us very early before we finalize requirements and programs of record. And if you really study about success or challenges with programs, it really starts back in that early period to understand how mature our technologies and do we have the right requirements in place. wanted to uh, kind of go back to the, the concept of speed of need. that In, in the JASI 2 and gen generally EMS superiority Generally speaking, it's it is a joint uh, requirement. Uh, what is how is the army approaching? You know, so much about speed has to rests in how you are interfacing, integrated with the other services. So, how is the army working with the air force and navy 
and Marine Corps and, and all the other components for this joint fight in a way to keep that speed, to give, give you the speed that you need to move forward? Yeah, it's a great question. In fact, um, back early in the fall, we had, it had been quite some time where we had a, a very senior level Army Air Force talks between our chief and the Air Force chief. Uh, and, and really uh, codified an agreement to do a number of things collectively with the Air Force. Uh, we have since expanded that, in fact, not too long ago, right here at Aberdeen Proving Ground, which uh, I jokingly say is a vacation destination. People just don't quite realize it yet. We were able to host the uh, Admiral Gilliday. We were able to host um, General Brown and uh, General McConville, our service chiefs down. And really, I, I think a number of things that we were, you know, agreed to work together. I mean, first being experimentation. And I, and I think one was uh, not necessarily doing an episodic fashion where we, we set up, we conduct event, we tear down, and then in a couple months we continue to repeat the cycle. We want to set up a persistent lab environment. So even right here in Aberdeen, we have a, a integration lab that allows us 24-7, 365 to do experimentation. I think some of the other areas, too, is, you know, increased a dialogue between both the, the requirements and even the material communities. In fact, I've been out to see uh, Rear Admiral uh, Smalls out at Project Overmatch. We've been out to the Air Force and the ABMS on ramps uh, with the Marine Corps. I do with uh, General Besajan. We do a lot of continuous dialogue to see, you know, where are there opportunities for us to be able to uh, to share, you know, technology interest to, to tackle things together. And then I think, you know, in general, that is, you know, helping us to to take on and work with industry in a much more collaborative fashion. I'll tell you finally, and probably most importantly, is the data. In fact, the J6 has really uh, seen that is probably the most vital area for focus. We have got to come, you know, to some semblance of a data fabric, not necessarily being common because that denotes one for all, but a federated type of a data approach where if we have common things in interest, position, location type information, red threat information, uh, fires types information, we need, need to be able to share some common themes. Obviously, uh, from an Army perspective, uh, we operate in a unique scale. Uh, we have a unique uh, disconnected, intermittent, limited and bandwidth environment. So that's kind of my role to make sure that I represent some of those equities. But uh, I think experimentation, uh, the material concepts sharing, and I think data is probably our three big focus areas to work more collaborative as a joint force. Well, thank you for uh, joining me. It was a great, great uh, message here at CMS. So I greatly appreciate your time and uh, look forward to working with you in the future. Great. Thank you very thank much. Thank you. All right. Take care. One of the features of AOC conferences is the interaction that we have with our industry partners. And I am pleased to be here with one of our platinum partners, uh, Raytheon Intelligence in Space, and specifically Mr. Ernie Winston, call sign Burt. He is the senior manager at Raytheon. And, and we are here to talk about a, an important capability that Raytheon has taken the lead on, the EWPMT, which is Electronic Warfare Planning and Management Tool. So Ernie, great to have you on the show with us and uh, appreciate you stopping by. Thanks, appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So let's get into the EWPMT system because we've heard this come up a number of times here during the conference. Um, what is it and what does it do? It's a program record for the Army, and the easiest way to describe it is a way to graphically depict what is happening in the EMS. Soldier or decision maker can look at the computer screen and see what is being emitted, both friendly and quote-unquote enemy emitters that are out there. We do. We have a uh, pretty robust modeling and simulation. In fact, it started out as a modeling and simulation. That's what uh, we came here to talk about, to present here at SEMA. It is a predictive tool 
that will depict graphically what is going to happen, or it's integrated with multiple sensors and can show what is is happening. And, and so one of the things they can do is kind of help to kind of break down some of the stovepipes because the spectrum kind of touches everything that the Army's doing out in the field. The EWPMT, that kind of helps create a clear, more uh, comprehensive picture of the battle space for the commander. Yeah, that's, a, that's exactly right. And it displays it graphically. Uh, I know I'm a visual learner and it's easier for me to see pictures of things. If you have a, uh, a unit that's moving to a point on the battle space, from an EMS perspective, you will be able to tell or predict if he'll have communications back to uh, upper echelon, you'll be able to uh, know if he's going to be jammed, if there's line of sight issues without jamming, or if you have another jammer, a friendly jammer in another location, if that is going to be impacted as well, uh, with, you know, uh, an EMS fratricide, if you will. And, and it's really geared to, you, you talked about, you know, sending the, the picture up echelon as well as, you know, down to the, I guess, the brigade level. It's, it's meant for across the force for the Army. Correct. Multiple multiple levels, brigade, uh, division. It can be run on uh, something as simple as a laptop for an individual user, and then it can also be run on a uh, a server to take all the inputs in as you as you get higher uh, higher headquarters. Now, now this uh, program has been in development or has evolved over the last couple of years. Could you talk about the, that process and and where it's come from over the last couple of years and where it's going moving forward? So it, it did start as a uh, modeling simulation tool. Uh, and a planning tool. It started as uh, what will happen if I deploy over here? How will the, the atmospherics, how will the terrain impact me? Will I be able to communicate? And then as uh, different uh, capability drops, as we call them, CD2, CD3 came on as an added capability. And we're eventually getting to a point where we want to integrate multiple sensors uh, and multiple effectors as well to be able to not just predict what will happen, but in the future, we want to see what is ha happening live uh, and then send a command to an effector to start jamming or, or to move or send to a unit to move to a cleaner location. So... What, what comes next for EWPMT then? Could this be used by the other services? Absolutely. Because it's already a program record with the Army, it is a pretty natural fit to move into the, to the Joint Force. Uh, Air Force and Navy would have multiple applications that, that they could think of. Just off the top of my head, thinking about the Navy uh, wanting to operate an MCON to be able to go in to a, uh, a contested environment. They can say that everything's turned off. These systems are so complicated that maybe somebody missed a switch somewhere. If we could tie in a spectrum analyzer, it would pre create a graphical depiction for that ship or for that, that group of ships to see that they, yes, actually are MCON or somebody's actually emitting something. Um, and they can make a real-time decision to of, of what that is. They can see what it is to communicate, to, to shut that off or figure out if there's a malfunction. Another important program that Raytheon is involved in is the Next Generation Jammer. Could you go in uh, a little bit of detail about where, where that program stands? Yep. Uh, we are approaching uh, Milestone C this year. Should be an approval for a uh, low-rate initial production. We have done uh, several test flights. We've done power generation flights, flown it on the growler. Integration is growing well, and we are gearing up for production of it. It's been a long program. I've been with the, I've been with, uh, uh, the Next Generation Jammer program. I started in... 2015. So seeing it from a, a development, a PowerPoint presentation and multiple engineering drawings to something actually flying is, is pretty neat. And getting ready for production is, is kind of fun to watch. Great. Well, thank you, Ernie. I appreciate you uh, taking time to be with me to, here today and uh, look forward to working with Raytheon in the future. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure.
So I'm here with Colonel Chad Bates, PhD. He is Special Assistant to the Commanding General U.S. Army Cyber Command. And uh, he just spoke, uh, gave a presentation on a modeling sim and simulation framework for cyberspace electromagnetic activities. So welcome, Colonel Bates. Good, great to have you on From the Crow's Nest. Hey, thanks, Ken. I'm glad to be here. So I want to get into your presentation. It's a very complicated topic, but I wanted to know what your, your main message was to the audience today. And then we'll get into some of the details. Well, I think as um, a lot of the keynote speakers and uh, like General Fogarty and, and General Hersey talked this, this morning, and they brought out this, you know, the whole thing as we start looking at taking cyber and electronic warfare and, and what General Hersey says and in information assurance, that's complex. It's very complex. And, and, you, and if you really take a step back, especially with the, with the old crows when you talk about electromagnetic or electro, uh, war, electronic warfare, that is a man-made environment. It is a cognitively difficult environment to wrap your brain around. So how are you going to pr prepare the fighting force to actually be successful in multi-domain operations? So, I mean, that's one of the things is you have to create that environment. You have to have an environment where they can do a lot of reps. They can see what's right, what doesn't work. But at the end of the day, they can really start understanding the complexities that, you know, cyber EW, you know, everything from the electronic uh, EMS is going to bring into it. You mentioned complex, and that's a term that we've used quite a bit in describing it. We know it's a lot of users, a lot of data. Could you kind of go in and talk about how these all these entities in the battlefield, what are what are these entities that make this such a complex environment and how are they uh, interacting with each other? So at, um, when the Army and actually the Department of Defense creates a modeling and simulations, right now what we have on the books is a lot of force on force. And when you're talking about that, an entity or an, an aggregate entity like a formation, you know, how do they interact with each other? So now when we start bringing multi-domain operations into it, it's, you know, now we look at the entities of like, oh, hey, it's an individual, but now they have, uh, you know, signatures off of them. They have, you know, cyber personas. Now, it, actually looking at the human factor of it, now, you know, what are their loyalties, who they are? Because at the end of the day, when we do cyber or EW, we don't want to break a system. We want to influence human behavior. Uh, you know, as General Fogarty is talking about, you want to get into that decision cycle. We want them to act a certain way. So you have to take that whole package into it. In modeling simulation, how do you go about introducing new variables and new some of these new entities? How do you build that in progression? At the end of the day, it's, you know, when we have a training exercise, what are the training objectives? And, and, and you really go from there. Because right, unfortunately right now, what we currently have our modeling installation programs are, we have out there, they're built with 1990s technology. So there's very limited, it's very scripted. And right now what we're doing is to, to actually able to execute these kind of things, we have to wrap different capabilities around them. Uh, in the, the synthetic training environment that they're building for the future, you know, they're, they're going to try to address some of that. But right now it's, it is a breaking point and it's a, it's a, it's a balancing act. You have to say, this is how much I can add to it because the system has a limited processing power, bandwidth and all that. And then what do you do on the wraparound when we actually do an exercise that, you know, is interaction between the different, you know, between the uh, training audience and also the instructors. Could you go into it a little bit more detail? In your presentation, you discuss the modeling and simulation framework components that make up this effort. So, I mean, first of all, when you start breaking it down, 
it's a communication part because at the end of the day with this modeling simulation framework is we want to provide a capability to the user, to the warfighter, that they can easily understand um, and moving forward. So there's an ontology, which is really breaking down um, an action into its components. Uh, because when you do modeling simulation, there's, there's a, the, how is the end user going to understand it, but also how does the engineer actually put it together so you can actually run it? And then there's a governing piece, uh, the governance piece, which is, okay, who's in charge, who's putting this together, who's driving this forward? Like right now, I'm leading the governance effort. And one of the aspects of it is communicating and addressing it to a larger audience like here at SEMA 2021. Uh, and then, and then on, on the parts of it is what is the data exchange models, the components of it? How do you actually put it together and framework uh, and 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 at the end of the day, is like uh, with mission threads and everything else moving forward on that one. So, what are some of the major activities that you're involved in with this uh, new framework that that you're working on? Well, it's right now is is right now is talking to the warfighter and working on these mission threads and these ontologies. It's like, okay, you know, what effects do you want to be able to replicate, and how do you communicate that to the commanders and staff that you're working with? So. Well, what do you want? Uh, how do how do we get that? You know, so we start building these ontologies, mission threads, and then we go out as new capabilities and simulations are being developed by different army organizations or joint organizations. We bring those into it and then say, okay, now then how does this fit into that ontology, into that mission thread as we move forward in that one? And then you know, in, in looking at really physical things like cyber and EW, but hey. You know, information assurance, like and information ops, and and, and all that stuff that you now the, the different senior leaders and keynote speakers talked about this morning. How do we integrate those complexities into this overall framework as it evolves, as it grows, and as it's governed? Earlier in our podcast, we had the uh, pleasure of speaking with uh, General Fogarty, and he was talking about the capability sets in twenty in twenty twenty one. And there's a number of priorities that the Army's pursuing. From a modeling and simulation standpoint, what are some of the gaps that you're trying to address in 2021 moving forward? Because, as I said, the synthetic training environment, you know, that's 2025 and farther out. And what, you know, what we're working on is what I got this coalition of willing participants is how do, what do we have now that we can start working after that, that cognitive? Because there, there's three main things that are, we have a problem is uh, when we start talking about simulations and, and the gaps themselves is, one, the simulations that we currently have don't have any cyber capability or EW capability. It has some, but it's not doesn't meet the training requirements or the requirements we need it to. Or they have a lot, like a like a high fidelity model that in the testing environment, which you can't utilize in your modern simulation network. So, we how do we replicate the the network? How do we replicate what an effect would be like on the network? Or on the different systems that we utilize, because you know, as, as going back to what I originally said, this is a man-made environment. We have to rely on technology to actually sense it. So that reliance on that technology is a vulnerability for us, but also it's a complexity of you have to simulate the operating environment so you can actually stimulate the systems that we have. We were talking earlier about the challenges of stovepipes that are present in pursuing JADC2, and these stovepipes exist across all the services. But can you share how the Army, through your modeling and simulation initiative, is helping to break down these stovepipes across uh, the services? That's a very good question because it's something that we work through, work through all the time trying to solve it. 
Uh, so it, I mean, goes back to this this uh, cyber EW modeling station workgroup that was stood up in 2017 by the Army Modeling Modeling and Simulation Office, and this is really a coalition of the willing. And and over time, as I had this, we've we've bringing more different services and joint and people in because at the end of the day, having this coalition of the willing, they say, hey, did you know the Air Force has this giant program that simulates GPS? Or, hey, the Navy has this, you know, RF lab, which helps re- replicates RF frequencies very well. And, and taking those and working with those people on on this work group and, and more or less bringing new people on. Because now I'm sure after, you know, I, I talk today, um, more people are going to reach out and say, hey, I want to be part of this work group and from different services and in the joint environment. And then that's that's working yet and bring it together. But now it's at the end of the day is... And I kind of go back when one of my slides is, you know, SEMA or cyber for cyber, uh, which is really focusing on how do we train our internal force? Uh, and that's when you get into high fidelity. That's for the cyber guys, how many routers, networks and details. EW, you're talking about power, frequency, atmospherics uh, and, and terrain. But then there's cyber for others or SEMA for others. And that's how the effects are. Right now, they're overall in the Army. Who's leading that? We're working on force on force, and and that is still a growing type of environment because it's hasn't really caught on that much. Um, so it's it's still a very difficult topic to understand. It's 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 intimidating, and it's it's hard to have that conversations with senior leaders before their eyes their eyes glass over because you're talking technical stuff. Well, thank you, Colonel Bates, for joining me for the special episode of From the Crow's Nest. I appreciate your time and look forward to working with you in the future. At this time, we'll take a break to hear from our episode sponsor, Pentec. Setting the standard for digital signal processing solutions, Pentec supports the warfighter with superior technology for radar, software radio, electronic warfare, signal intelligence, and other cyber electronic activity. Pentec's mission is to provide the defense embedded community with leading-edge, open-architecture board and system-level solutions when real-time results and critical decision-making is a must. At Pentech, we unlock the spectrum of innovation. Pentech empowers the warfighter and the defense program community to build systems that support cyber readiness. Pentech's product solutions enable application success in communications, countermeasure activity, surveillance, and helps the warfighter identify and locate friend from foe. By providing cutting-edge, interoperable, deployable board and system-level solutions for the most demanding, high-performance requirements, Pentech arms the defense community with the electronic tools they need for mission readiness and success. Pentech, the company that sets the standard for digital signal processing and unlocks the power of innovation. Learn more at www.pentech.com slash go slash EW. I'm here with another one of our Platinum Industry sponsors, Leonardo DRS, and I'm sitting here with Mr. Tom Gorsuch, who is the Director of Business Development and Strategic Technology Initiatives at Leonardo out of their Airborne and Intelligence Systems Division. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest. Hi, Ken. Great. Great. Thanks to be here. 
So you've been here all week, and I, and I know you're heavily involved in a lot of uh, the the topics uh, in, in discussion here at SEMA 2021. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the role that Leonardo DRS is playing, and what are some of the issues that are important to the attendees here uh, from your perspective? Right. We, uh, you know, we're very involved in the uh, TLS set of programs, and we've been involved uh, from the very beginning with the CMOS and SOSA uh, alignment. Uh, and we, you know, we develop a lot of the sensors uh, that that are critical to enabling uh, the the vision here and so um, you know we're, we're excited to, to stay involved and to understand you know what, what we're trying to do and to, to play our part and we talked a little bit about the CMOS the suite of standards and uh, some of the opportunities and, and and efforts on that front and I noticed that at your at your booth you had uh, you you were displaying a few few specific programs. Can you go into some of what you had here to show the attendees? Right. What we're showing in, uh, in our booth here are uh, CMOS, SOSA aligned uh, product suites, probably most notably our Vesper product line, uh, which is uh, uh, transceivers and multi-channel uh, transceivers uh, that are fully compliant and have uh, been developed over a series of years. And uh, also, uh, what's not shown at our booth, but we do applications on top of those. So we have a full set of ap- applications, um, including uh, very low swap, uh, full applications for uh, direction finding, electronic warfare, and uh, c- uh, cyber activities. So, and those include uh, you know software applications, user interfaces, the an- antennas, the, the entire thing. A-, a big part of what uh, we've been working on are uh, AI and machine learning capabilities at, at the edge, at the tactical edge, and that's been talked about here in the mm-hmm. conference a lot. So we're less reliant on the communications. So we've made a lot of uh, advancement in, in that regard. And can you talk a little bit about how the Army's pursuit of their modernization plan that has been heavily focused on, on CMOS open standards as well as addressing some of the challenges of, of big data and, and, and uh, processing that, how, how that has influenced uh, your, your business areas in, 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 the past, uh, in the past few years and, and, and moving forward. Right, like, like I mentioned, we, uh, we've been involved in the, the VITA standards from the very beginning and also from the, the CMOS, SOSA standards. Uh, we're a big proponent of that. It really helps us guide where we're putting our investment dollars uh, because we understand you know, architecturally where things are going. Yeah, so the products you see is laying out on the table there. They, uh, you know, they didn't happen overnight. They're multiple years of uh, investment to get to where we're at. So, um, and uh, it's very significant in terms of the ability to keep up with uh, the way electromagnetic uh, activities going and, and waveforms and new waveforms coming out all the time. In order to be able to have a, a standard that people can build upon, uh, and then to to replace a card when you need it uh, for a new waveform. That's uh, that's critical to being able to keep up in today's uh, RF environment. Great. Well, well, thank you for joining me on Friend of the Christmas. I look forward to seeing you at uh, future AOC shows. Thanks, Ken. Thank you. It's been a great show, and uh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank yeah. you. All right, I'm here with Mr. David Trempert, SES. He is the Director of EW in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment. Uh, good morning, David. Yeah, good morning. 
Uh, so you just provided an opening presentation here on day two at Zima, and I know your time is short with us, so I wanted to dive right into what you wanted to share with the audience here this morning, specifically uh, the emphasis areas uh, that your office is focused on. Yeah, so uh, I think as we're watching budgets start to level off and in some cases decrease, one of the areas that we're paying specific attention to is what we call investment efficiency. So EW offers opportunities to leverage investments across the services because of kind of the common challenges of the hardware, both in digital and analog. And so what we've been working with the services do is to start highlighting areas that one service may be ahead of the other services, but there's a need uh, and recognizing that that service where they have invested in hardware, say digital or, or analog where the software could potentially be leveraged across the other services to, to meet threshold or objective requirements. And in some cases, the, the other services are saying, we would like to have that capability, but it's a long stretch. If we can connect, say, a Navy investment to an Army op objective requirement, then suddenly they have the capability to get that, that almost zero cost in development, more of just refined to the digital integration cost. There's a lot of competing factors in, in, in the defense budget moving forward. Um, we are still waiting for the formal FY 2022 request. So there's a lot of uncertainty moving forward. How is your office uh, managing both the competing interests, but also kind of looking, ha having a long-term uh, long perspective on the resources that you need to fund uh, development of programs? So one of the things that we have been focusing on is, is both where are there capability commonalities that would allow us to leverage investment, but also how do our EWEP challenges translate to operational issues, right? And so one of the things we have seen is when in the, within the radio frequency community or the EOIR community where you have these scientists and engineers who can talk that because they've lived it for 25 years, translating what they see as challenges to senior DOD leadership can be an issue. And, and partly because those senior leaders, they don't talk that language. And so what they need to understand is they need to understand what's the impact on kill ratios? What's the impact on attrition rates? What's the impact on operational plans? So what we've been attempting to do lately is bridge that gap between say a, a radar's vulnerability or an ES vulnerability and the operational impact because it's it's when you translate it to the operational impact, the senior leaders start to understand the significance of it. And then you can start starting, you can see the budget impacts resulting from senior leadership awareness of those challenges. You mentioned EP, electronic protection. When we talk EMS superiority or EMS dominance, we oftentimes focus really heavily on the EA side. I think maybe forget or don't pay enough attention to electronic protect. We'd like to get your uh, your thoughts on investing in electronic protect. What does that mean and how difficult is it to, to educate leaders across DOD and other stakeholders on the need for EP? So it, it's, it's actually easy to educate leaders. The challenge is implementing any change on EP. And, and the reason is that the EW community is very aware of the EP vulnerabilities of radars and comms and PNT because that's what we do. We attack those things. Right? So then and when we have to look at our own EP challenges, we look at it from kind of the red force, op force side and say from an EW perspective, can I defeat my our own radar and comms PNT systems? And we can find those vulnerabilities. We can present those vulnerabilities as senior leadership and make senior leadership aware that we have a radar problem, we have a comms problem, PNT problem. What becomes challenging is then that the, the part of that that then implements change on those radars, those comms, and those PNT systems because those programs and those systems are not managed by the EW community. So despite the EW community understanding the challenge, EP is not a system, it's a feature, right? It's, it's spectrum hopping or, or it's frequency hopping or spread spectrum that a radio does or a radar does to survive in a contested or congested environment. The EW community has no say 
on how that is done in a radar or a comms or a PNT system. So we can present the issues to senior leadership, but it's not until someone points at that radar program and says, you need to go fix that, that change will occur. And the EW community can't implement that change. We can only inform senior leadership that there's an issue. And we might understand the vulnerabilities, but sometimes it's hard to to really know for certain how what we need or how much we need until it's in the field or facing the real threat and, and instead versus early development of the system. That's that's exactly right. And so it, it requires really op for during the development and testing to show that there's a challenge there that was not accounted for. So so a radar can say, hey, I need I need EP features and design them in. But very often what happens is the testing or the exercising of that EP gets cut when the budgets or the schedules or the performance gets constrained. And as soon as that happens, then the the program says, well, I designed EPN, I should be good, right? I have frequency hopping, I should be good. Uh, What we've learned from radar developers and comms developers and PNT developers is it's not until you bring that in the field, as you suggested, that you see that your designs may not actually be sufficient for the environment you're going to go into. And it's not until you test it, that you have funded the testing, you have scheduled the testing, and you've taken that out into the field to see that it happens, that you learn that there's a problem and you can take it back and, and troubleshoot it and fix it. But as I suggested earlier, budget constraints, schedule constraints, performance constraints, and suddenly the EP testing is one of the first things to go. They don't get that opportunity to exercise the EP, and suddenly they go to the field with what they designed in, which in many cases is not sufficient. Interference is a little bit tricky to, to understand. You, in your presentation, you talked, it's not just DOD that struggles with understanding inter, the role of interference, also in the commercial sector. And you pointed to a report where in with 5G, starting to understand that there's 5G inter, potential 5G interference. Could you go into that? Because when earlier in, in our show, sat down with Powder, our AOC president, and we talked about the need to interface more directly with the commercial sector and 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 learn from them, but also have a conversation about some of these common issues. Yeah, I think I think this also gets at spectrum management challenges, right? So I think in my history in ST, I've seen a lot of efforts that looked at, I'm just going to build a grid and I'm gonna take that grid and I'm gonna tell the radars you operate over here and your EW systems operate over here and comms you, you operate over here. I think anybody who has worked in say counter IED recognizes that if you put a, a radio next to a high sensitivity EW receiver, you're gonna have interference even if those things aren't operating in the same band, right? We're seeing that start to happen as the spectrum becomes more congested. And and that RITCA report, that Radio Technical Communications for Aeronautics report, showed that that 5G radar transmitters that are in a band that is a few hundred megahertz away from our radar altimeters and civilian aircraft is causing interference or can cause interference. And it's caused because the radar altimeter has a roll-off receiver that can pick up inf- can pick up signals from that the uh, 5G transmitter band, and the 5G transmitter is putting noise outside of its band that the radar altimeter can hear inside of its band, and you get this this cross interference problem. One of the fundamental issues there is you've got a 5G communications transmitter that has a much higher noise floor than a radar altimeter receiver, and if you have that noise floor mismatch, you end up in a situation where the radar altimeter is detecting signals that the 5G transmitter hadn't accounted for because it's in its noise, but it's it's above the noise in the radar altimeter. So the, the commercial world has to start paying attention to this too, because as the, as the spectrum becomes more congested, we're going to start seeing what's called electromagnetic compatibility problems. That is blue on blue interference 
when historically we've talked about EP in terms of hostile jammer taking out my sensor, we also need to be very careful about my own radios interfering with my own EWS systems, interfering with my own radars. And, and you know, we're already starting to have a conversation about 6G and so forth. So if we don't solve the problem now, it's only going to exponentially get worse down the road. That, that's exactly right. And, and it gets back to your point earlier that, that this understanding needs to be at the very beginning of design and development of our spectrum using systems. It's not historically been accounted for because we had enough spectrum that we could operate wherever we wanted and, and be unimpeded, whether it was our own blue signals or, or, or hostile red signals. Uh, but now we have to be very careful about it. We need to understand the phenomenology that's happening in, in kind of that RF propagation space, which means you need scientists and engineers that understand electromagnetic propagation to be able to start accounting for some of these issues. And in the case of that Ritka report, there were scientists and engineers who were RF propagation experts that were part of that, and they missed that, right? That that, that could potentially happen was not accounted for. So there's even phenomenology that we can't predict, and we need to be able to have the EP in our systems to account for things we couldn't predict. And, and, and for our listeners, we'll download that report and make it available on the AOC site, so that, because I think there's a lot of interesting recommendations and findings in, in there that our community uh, would like to, to take a look at. So thank, thank, thank you for bringing that to our t- attention. I want to move briefly to another capability, another technology uh, that you mentioned in your presentation, uh, and that's directed energy. Uh, in, in the last episode of From the Crow's Nest, uh, I, I sat down with uh, Congressman Jim Langevin. He is a leader in Congress on directed energy, and we were talking a little bit about some of the challenges of operationalizing directed energy, uh, moving it from the lab into the field. And uh, I was wondering if you could address some of those, some of those challenges and where DE is today. So DE predominantly exists in that still in that ST world. The Undersecretary for Research and Engineering is really the expert on DE. There's not many, if any, directed energy programs of record, right? So so I, I think we're starting to see that migration from the ST world into operational systems. And there are some operational systems. It's just that the acquisition process isn't overseeing those types of systems. So what we're looking at now that we are electromagnetic warfare is how do we incorporate that DE perspective into our EW portfolio so that it is part of the EM electromagnetic conversation. Uh, Right now, there is a seam there, I would say. We don't have inherent expertise on DE. We we rely a lot on that research and engineering side to provide the expertise. But I think think we're going to start to see growth, and I think we're going to start to see kind of that high-power microwave DE, EW kind of convergence uh, because they're all spectrum using systems, very different power levels that they're using, but you can imagine DE systems that can tailor back power to do EW effects. And even you can imagine radar systems that can create DE effects. So I think we're gonna start to see DE sprinkled across a lot of different programs, existing programs of record that are already using spectrum, potentially future programs that, that will use the, the spectrum. Great, one last question, I know your time is short. Uh, many of our listeners and, and here people here at SEMA today know your role in the EW Executive Committee, but there are quite a number of listeners that might not be familiar with how that's organized and what the role of the EW Executive Committee is. So I was wondering if you could just go in uh, briefly and t- tell us about your role in, in, in that capacity. So I am the Executive Secretary, co-secretary with the Joint Staff uh, J8, which is Operational Requirements. So. We have an EW capabilities team, which feeds the EW XCOM. We are the chairs of that team. Uh, we research topics. We bring in speakers from across the department, talk about challenges, issues, opportunities. Then we craft that into a story to bring to senior leadership. So senior leadership includes all the under, most of the undersecretaries in the, in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. It includes the vice chiefs of all the services. It includes the service acquisition executives and some of the COCOMs. 
they sit around the table and we put in front of them what our findings were effectively from the EW capabilities team. Here are issues that we have, here are opportunities that we have. And in that XCOM forum, it allows the undersecretary for acquisition to immediately comment to the undersecretary for research and engineering that how are we addressing this? How could we address this? And at that point, the undersecretary for research engineering says we can do this or we could do that. And the service acquisition chiefs can hear that and the vice chiefs can hear that and make recommendations from their service perspective on what they're doing to, to effectively account for that. So, so what it has created is it's created that environment where we can educate senior leadership on the challenges. Senior leadership can immediately make recommendations on action to help address those challenges. And we see that happen. I think, I think one of the, the challenges we have with the XCOM is everything we do is classified. So, so publishing the results of what the XCOM has done becomes a non-starter. And so there is this perception that the XCOM, what is the XCOM doing? They haven't made significant change. There's a lot of change happening. It's just that it doesn't happen in an unclassified world. It happens more in the, the classified space. Well, thank you for taking time to join me this morning. I greatly appreciate your remarks. And I do look forward to having you on a full episode from The Crow's Nest in the near future. We'll be reaching out shortly, but we've been talking about this for a little bit. So I'm looking forward to having you on for a much fuller discussion here in the near future. Absolutely. I look forward to it. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, we're going to move on to my next guest. I have with me here Colonel Kevin Finch. He is the program manager for EW and Cyber. Uh, welcome, Colonel Finch. Hey, good, good morning, and uh, thank you for having me on. Uh, it's uh, you know the uh, the role that AOC plays in um, the, you know, the electronic warfare and the EMS is has been very important. And uh, you know, it's uh, I, I will say I've been very impressed with uh, how the uh, uh, AOC has uh, dealt with the pandemic and, you know, ensure that we continue to have outreach. Currently, right now, we're having the SEMA conference in May. Uh, this is the first live event that I've actually been to in the last um, over over a year. So, uh, but I, I just want to, th- you know, thank the organization for their perseverance and, and continuing to, uh, you know, be able to provide an outlet for, uh, you know, government and industry to collaborate and, and uh, you know, to say kind of where, what the current state of affairs is. So I, I want to thank the organization for that. We want to thank you, too, because you have been a, a frequent contributor here with the AOC. And I know you just spoke a couple months ago on our program manager's briefing series. Always appreciate uh, the, the message that you have. So you, your office oversees the development of, of several key programs uh, that are important to the Army's uh, persistent modernization plan. You just got done speaking to SEMA here on day two. Uh, so what was, what was your, the, the, your key message to the audience today? The focus of this SEMA conference is, uh, you know, MDO, you know, 2035 and beyond. And, and you know, really, and, and I've talked about this before, but, you know, the Army really divested the majority of its EW capabilities at the end of the Cold War. And, uh, you know, for us, you know, we really had a clean slate on, you know, how, how we are going to, you know, get the Army posture to to address the national defense security strategy and, and, and you know, address those those peer, peer threats. And so from that perspective, you know, we really laid out, you know, a, a uh, aerial layer, a terrestrial layer, and a foundational layer of capabilities that, you know, we need to be able to execute MDO, you know, 2035 and beyond. And, uh, you know, those are really the, the starting points. Now, th- now the, the, the big thing uh, with, with these systems that we have is, you know, making sure that, you know, we, we have them uh, in, you know, in a way that we can, we can pace the threat. Uh, so, so it becomes very important. But really, what we wanted to do is kind of like show a roadmap of of uh, hey, how how do we have those those three layers uh, um, 
are, are how do we have those interoperable? And so we also talked about the SEMA architecture to make sure that we have interoperability amongst all those systems. You know, we've uh, like I said before in the past, we've been really good at making stovepipes. Um, but, you know, we're very cognizant to make sure that we have systems that are interoperable and they have a architecture that supports that interoperability. You, you, you mentioned architecture and, and the basically the need to adapt to change um, and, and to win and fight under any condition. And, and kind of important to that is open standards, open systems architecture, particularly CMOS, which is a C5 ISR EW modular open systems architecture. Uh, Swedish so standards. standards. Yeah. standards. Okay. <laughs> yeah. There are some people, yeah, so it's, people have to remember that. It's the Swedish standards. Yes. So uh, could, you, could you discuss kind of the role of OSA and in, in, in preparing the Army for the future fight and how, how that improves the systems that you put on the field? Yeah, very much so. And so, I mean, I, I really think the key to future success in, in our domain is to is to is to maintain those open standards and, and and the reason why is is I can go out to industry right now and say hey I want you to build me a black box that that addresses the threat as it currently is and they'll do that and and it, and it will do exactly what you need it to do for that particular moment in time but we all know that you know the only thing constant is change and that, you know, the, the enemy is going to continue to adapt. Technology is going to continue to progress. You know, why would we have a system that's static for a, a, a moment in time? And uh, I can't remember the Air Force uh, uh, chief of staff who said it, but he's like, hey, hey we're, we're not making airplanes anymore. We're making software that flies. Mm-hmm. And so, so from that perspective, you know, we really have to make sure that our systems are, are really more of, of, of you know, software-based and then the hardware becomes a commodity. So that way, you know, as as technology changes, we can you know easily adapt new hardware into that software architecture that allows us to you know be able to take advantages of advancements in uh, you know uh, technology. The other thing that, as well is hey, as compute continues to improve, we have to make sure that that software is continually updated to make sure that we're, we're taking advantage of of that of that hardware. Uh, so it's kind of kind of you have two streams going on simultaneously. You have to have a software, you know, a baseline that allows you to take advantage of the new hardware, and then you know continually to refresh that hardware, you know, as the technology improves. So so that's really the, you know the big key to open systems architectures is not to get yourself locked into a point in time, but you know being able to easily integrate third party capabilities into a system after it's already been fielded. Because you're you're not always aware of the adjustments and change that you need to make until you're actually in the field facing the real threats, and you have to be able to do that real time. Right, and so the threat's going to continually change, and so I mean, like you almost have to go to look at a uh, a wholesale change in the way that you look at sustainment, because you're not really sustaining capability anymore. What you're really really doing is maintaining the capability to address the threat. So what does that really look like? So, so let's just kind of do a, an instance. I, we, we use a lot of uh, commercial off-the-shelf computing technologies, right? right? Why, why would I go buy a lifetime buy of current technology compute when I know industry is going to invest the money to improve that com- computing technology, right? I, kn- I don't even have to invest any R&D in that, right? I mean, so I, we're just taking advantage of what's happening in our industry, so from that perspective, you know, why would I just buy what I put in the system today, knowing that technology is going to continue to progress? We need to have that, like I said, we need to have that arch- that open systems architecture that allows me to take advantage of those investments that are happening outside of the uh, outside of the military, and and you know easily in- inject that in. So you know, r- really, 
from that perspective, we have to be continually to realize that our, our sustainment strategy is really a maintain, a maintain strategy and continue to, to insert those new technologies as they advance. I want to talk a little bit about your portfolio specifically. You have a lot of very important programs that, to this community and, and that you mentioned in your presentation. You have tr- uh, the terrestrial layer system, MFU, uh, multifunction EW, uh, EW planning management tool, and others. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about some of these programs, where they're at today, where they're going, what are, what are some of the uh, points on the horizon that the attendees and, and defense industry here today uh, should be looking at? Okay, great. And so, so well, uh, you know, when I talked a little bit before, I talked about the three different layers. So I'll kind of go through those with the, the, the different layers. So the foundational layer, the primary system that we have there is the electronic warfare planning and management tool. And so that, that uh, uh, we're just finishing up uh, increment one. Uh, a- actually, as we speak, uh, we have, uh, um, you know, teams in, in Colorado doing the developmental testing for, for that system. So, so really excited where we're at with that. Uh, we had uh, capability drop three of increment one as a part of the uh, the SEMA ONS uh, efforts and also the, all the ONS efforts that we've had. So we've got a lot of soldier feedback from from that particular uh, capability, and we've improved it. So uh, you know, Colonel Jason Marshall, who's my uh, um, uh, PM for uh, electronic warfare integrations, done an outstanding job making sure that we have those soldier touch points uh, built into the system. And, uh, and and really, we have really matured that um, very significantly. Now, from from a from a DT perspective, you know, we we also have the terrestrial layer system coming online, and we also have inferior air coming online. So, you know, we'll have to go back and do some iterative testing with the EWPMT uh, to make sure that we can, you know, should clearly demonstrate that sensor to shooter uh, piece uh, with uh, you know with uh, EWPMT. But I'm very confident, just based on the on the on the performance that it's had with our ONS effort, that they'll do well. So so we're DT testing with EWPMT and and uh, preparing to field that in, in in 23. So with the aerial layer system, we have inferior large. That system currently is is um, been performing in a number of different demonstrations, and so it's been. Uh, we've uh, integrated it with uh, some on the Gray Eagle with uh, uh, folks out of uh, Fort Campbell. We've been doing a, a number of demonstrations uh, at Edge 21 and at Project Convergence uh, this summer uh, to con- continue to demonstrate the capability and, and what it brings to the warfighter. Now, Infuair Large is very important because as far as having a, a EW system at altitude, you know, it's going to be the, the you know the highest, um, you know, it'll probably, probably have the best range out of any any system that I have in my portfolio from that perspective because it, because it's on the on the Gray Eagle. But uh, we're really looking forward to getting some uh, feedback from Project Convergence this summer. I think it's going to be a really exciting event, you know, since it's going to be in the Pacific. So, so I think it's going to be able to really, you know, demonstrate its capabilities uh, very, very well there. So, so we're looking to go into test uh, next year. Uh, just recently had a, a milestone C decision uh, from our from our PEO, and so uh, uh, we're uh, you know we're, we're in the process of uh, you know buying some of those pods right now. But uh, really excited about that, and then also getting it integrated into the multi-domain task force. Uh, you know, one who's out at, at uh, Joint Base Lewis McCord. So, so really excited about that. As far as the terrestrial layer goes, we have a lot going on. From an ONS perspective, uh, we're finishing up the uh, the fielding of our our, um, our twos and tool uh, systems. Uh, our, our, um, and, and the twos is the tactical EW system, system right? And so that's a, that was our QR, our quick reaction capability that was on the on the flat bottom striker. So so that's uh, we're finishing up the fielding of that uh, this this FY. 
And then, uh, you know, the tool as well, which it goes to the light units, is the tactical EW system light. And uh, so, so that, that's really giving the, the, those, those brigades that, that initial capability that they've really lacked. Uh, vast improvement over Sabre Fury, which is a system we had in the field before. So we're in the process of defielding that, and, uh, and uh, we'll finish up with the, with the twos this summer. The TLS BCT is the next system, and and so that that system is uh, you know if uh, from a from an acquisition perspective we've really been at warp speed, and and I just want to thank the you know the uh, you know our partners our our, our two OEMs that are uh, providing uh, you know that that capability. Uh, we just got done with a uh, operational capability demonstration, Bravo. So we have to actually see the B kit, the compute piece of this. Uh, out at the out of the range um, during the March time period, and uh, actually next month, and uh, we're going to be going to Arizona to actually see their integration of the A kit. So, so we're actually seeing this integrated on the Striker. So it's going to be really exciting times for TLS BCT. It'll continue to go under a, a series of evaluations this summer, and we're expecting an upselect to to one vendor in a late summer time period. So, so a lot a lot of goodness going on there. Uh, the next big one we have is uh, TLS EAB, and so that that's uh, that's the echelons above brigade, and and so you know we, we gave a presentation on that during during our briefing and, and kind of giving kind of the current state of play, but that'll be a new start in FY22, uh, but you know that, that'll be providing that you know uh, you know the extended range capability to the multi domain task force division and core, so so a lot a lot of goodness going on there as well. The other one that I just want to you know highlight is the tactical cyber equipment. So you know when you talk about SEMA, you know there is some cyber in that, and so you know we can't forget about those. And, and so so the uh, you know the Army's uh, formations, you you have the 915th the Cyber Warfare Battalion. Uh, you know so they, they have a you know a number of teams to, that uh, you know that they're, they're going to be service retained that that are provided to the brigades to to provide cyber capabilities to to the BCTs. And so we're. Uh, really excited! I went down um, in January to uh, the, the the critical design review for for that that uh, capable the tactical cyber equipment capability, and we're getting our first prototypes this summer, and uh, we'll, we'll start you know doing some evaluations of, of those systems uh, over the next several months. But you know that that's going to really provide that you know initial capability to to the nine fifteenth. Now, wh- where this gets really exciting is that. Tactical cyber equipment, Air Large, TLIS BCT are all using the same CMOS standard. So it's the EWC CMOS standard. And and why I corrected you earlier when you said it was the standard, like for CMOS, it's a suite, right? So you have to really define within that SOSA CMOS standard which one you're going to use because, you know, if you use a six, I don't care how hard you push, you're not getting a 6U card into a 3U slot. Uh, so, so, it, and then also the pinout is is very important as well. And so, uh, from that perspective, you know, we've got, you know, I wanted to make sure that we have interoperability across our, our portfolio. So, all three of those are using the same standard, and so a lot, a lot of goodness there. One last question, you know, with the future years defense budget, you, you have a very aggressive schedule moving forward, and and you've made a lot of progress. Just realistically, you can expect DOD-wide some contraction in some of the limited resources that are available for future defense. And in our previous episode with from the Crow's Nest, with uh, I was sitting down with Congressman Langevin, and we were talking about the defense budget. And he's like, you know, he mentioned that you know we have to be smarter in how we invest. We don't. While we there is going to be contraction, that doesn't mean there has to be a lot of pain with that. Um, realize. So, how is the Army? How is your office? 
what steps are you taking to to be smarter in the way that you invest to to make sure that you can maintain this aggressive schedule moving forward in the new reality that there is some contraction, there is some uncertainty in resourcing uh, moving forward? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the, the you know the answer that, that I'll give you is it really comes back to the key of how we've we've architected these systems. And so so as you as we progress forward, you know, if you end up having that, you know, software architecture is the key and you're able to integrate the hardware, it doesn't mean you have to integrate all of the hardware at one time, right? So, so I mean, from, from a, um, you know, one, one of my deputies said before is like, hey, initially you're going to get the rental car version of, uh, of this capability and then over time we're going to iterate. You know, at this point, you know, I think we have to be very smart with, you know, as the, as the budgets, we see those budgets contracting is you know making the the smart decisions on hey what are the key capabilities that have to be in the system and what and kind of what are the nice to haves and then and then from that perspective then as as funding becomes available or the technology progresses to make that 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 capability cheaper uh, you know we're able to easily integrate into the system so so from that perspective I think it, it really is what we have to do is is it, it all comes back down to that modular open standards that like hey we don't need to have it to do everything right out of the gate which saves costs and, and and those are conversations that we have going on with a number of our different programs one of the big things as well is is you know is incorporating cyber capabilities and so there's you know obviously some cyber capabilities that we need to incorporate into these systems but you know it takes time and effort to, to do that, but it's it's one of those things that you have to make sure that the system is architected correctly in order to accept those capabilities at a later point in time. I told my PMs, uh, you know, with me, what what is winning in, in electronic warfare? And, and the answer to winning is not my, you know, like, hey, the system needs to do what it needs to do today, but winning is two PMs from now, they're a- easily able to upgrade these systems to, to pace the threat. But that also means if, if the budget cuts occur, that, that that if there's a technology that we have to delay for whatever reason, that it's easily able to be easily integrated into that system as well. So so that way, you know, we we have that 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 architecture already laid out that allows us to upgrade it over time as as funding becomes available. Well, well, thank you for uh, joining me this morning, and I, I appreciate everything you've been doing uh, on, you know, in support of the AOC shows. And it's great to see you back in person here again, uh, once again. So, thank you so yeah, much. It's, it's a great. It's a, actually I've, this is the first time I haven't done a Zoom uh, thing for uh, for AOC in a long time. So I, it is great being it, here. It, in it's person. a much different reality here. So. It, it is. It's great to see folks. Uh, it's uh, it's amazing. You know how, how much camaraderie there are there in the association of old crews, and it's uh, been great to see some some old friends and also see some new faces as well. So it's been really exciting. Well, well thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you. Thank you. At this time, I'd like to welcome another in- platinum industry partner here at AOC SEMA 2021, Lockheed Martin Corporation, and I'm here with Mr. Joe Ottaviano. He is Program Management Director for Lockheed Martin's Maritime and Air Cyber EW Division. Welcome, Joe, to From the Crow's Nest. Yeah, it's good to be here, Ken. Thank you. So we're just wrapping up uh, two great days of presentations, um, and I would like to get your thoughts from an industry perspective on how the Army is pursuing its SEMA vision and what message do you want attendees here uh, at SEMA to take away in terms of Lockheed Martin's role in this uh, effort? 
Yeah, so so you know, if you look at the pillars that the Army has for you know, as their as their SEMA uh, approach, right, which is the cyberspace operations, electronic warfare, and spectrum management, you know, the message is that you know, with with advances in open architecture systems, all of that is a, can be made available to the warfighter, and, and you know, today, right, you, you the days of having stovepipe systems that that. You know, you know, do each one of those um, are, you know, are, are quickly dissolving behind us. And and what we're finding is, you know, and again, a lot of it, you know, both industry and, you know, Lockheed Martin investment along with along with the Army itself, you know, you know, have have gotten to a point where, you know, we've kind of hit a nexus, um, you know, cyber electronic warfare, signals, intelligence and, and spectrum management where, you know, these can be done seamlessly. Um, you can integrate across multiple sensors now, um, you know, by leveraging such, you know, such advancements as, you know, the advancement in open architecture and CMOS and really bridge the gap, uh, you know, for the warfighter. So all that information is available in, in what used to take hours in real time today. And, and that's been a recurring theme here. We heard earlier on, on this episode from uh, General Fogarty and uh, General Collins both uh, mentioning the, the need to uh, opera, operationalize at the, at the speed of data and connecting sensors to shooters. I'd like to know if you could go into a little bit more about how Lockheed Martin is contributing to this effort, uh, specifically to meet some of these requirements of both converging EW and cyber and also just the compatibility these systems need uh, in the battle space today. Yeah, so so you know, I use a clear example. You know, our Infrared Large Initiative, which you know, again, um, Lockheed is invested in the open architecture and and moving this you know converged cyber electronic warfare and in in spectrum management capability forward. And it's important, you know, if you look at what we've what we've brought forth in the Infrared Large capability, it's important to see how you know, again, you can move across multiple disciplines to get that data, you know, to the battlefield, right, as, as, uh, as, as, as they'd like at the speed of data, you know, connecting the sensors to the shooters. I think, you know, what we've shown is you can use the inferior large pod to, to do all of that, including spectrum management. The system can sense, see what the environment's doing, adjust, um, and give the warfighter a better picture as, as it's detecting and then providing, you know, providing, you know, whatever effects that, that are deemed necessary, you know, on top of sensing the environment and providing that, you know, it brings, you know, this open architecture we've already demonstrated can plug into multiple platforms rapidly without the long integration stroke that you would typically see and, and give, you know, you know, gives them a way to bring this to bear now, right? So you can integrate it. It provides real time, real-time spectrum dominance, converged spectrum dominance, uh, you know, across the, the, the pillars. And, and, and you mentioned MFUAIR Large, and that is a technology that you're exhibiting here on, on the, in the uh, floor today. What are some of the milestones that you're looking forward to moving into the future with that program? Yeah, so we continue to demonstrate and expand the capability. You know, we recently just come off a, a series of demonstrations, and there's ones there's there's at least two additional demonstrations up and coming. You know, I refer you to the customer on on those specific demonstrations. But but we continue to demonstrate the milestones this year, expanding beyond you know 
you know, the, the, the original mission of Converge, but also converged and spectrum management capabilities at the same time, cyber EW and the spectrum management. So we'll continue to, to move those demonstrations forward. And, and that's driving a lot of, a lot of interest, uh, you know, across the service and, and even some interest from other services based on the capability it provides. You're talking about driving interest and you know, Lockheed Martin, of course, is a global company. You have and what are some of the technologies that Lockheed Martin is looking into, even outside of just SEMA, where you're, you're driving a lot of interest across the services and, and also throughout the rest of the defense uh, industrial base? Yes, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a great, great question. Where it, you know, where we're driving our investment, again, is, is, is the focus on leveraging, you know, cutting edge commercially uh, technology packaged in an open architecture way such that you have, you know, the latest advances in chip level architecture, but the way you package it, it's a drop in upgrade without going through that long integration stroke. As I mentioned before, that, that's key to one of the tenets of what we're trying to provide here. You know, we've, we've got a version, uh, for instance, of, you know, advanced digital processing and, and advanced data Ds in the system. Now, you know, we're in the process of, of just dropping in upgrades to, for, to leverage, uh, you know, the latest uh, RF system on a chip. Um, but we package it in such a way that it's not a, you know, it's a new, it's not a new architecture. It's, it's, it's leveraging that CMOS and that open architecture and it drops in very quickly as, as an, ex, as a good example. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me here on, on Friendly Crosis, Joe and, and AOC certainly appreciates the support of Lockheed Martin at our, at uh, our events. And we look forward to seeing you at the, uh, at our next event, which will be the AOC convention and symposium here in uh, November. But thank you for joining me. Thank you very much, Ken. It was a pleasure. Take care. That will conclude our special episode of From the Crow's Nest here at AOC SEMA 2021. I'd like to thank our episode sponsor, Pentech. Pentech provides cutting-edge, interoperable, deployable board and system-level solutions for the most demanding high-performance requirements. Pentech arms the defense community with the electronic tools they need for mission readiness and success. Learn more at pentech.com slash go slash EW. I'd like to thank all of our speakers and our industry partners here this week for joining me for this edition. And I'd also like to thank Vox Topica, our podcast consultant, for being here with me to help make this special episode a reality. I'd also like to mention that our sister podcast, History of Crows, will be released today. You can learn more at crows.org slash podcast. Thank you for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.